and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David, the Skeptic. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, we're here, uh, guess what, to finish off our series on the Messianic Prophecies. This will be our fourth and final part. Um, and in this case, uh, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to be presenting just a quick view uh, related to the timing of when I think the Messiah is supposed to come uh, before the destruction of the Second Temple. And uh, also David's going to be presenting, sort of countering that, but also presenting uh, an overall counter uh, to my case uh, on Messianic prophecies as a whole. Um, so, so yeah, just getting in, getting straight into it. Um, and establishing the argument, well, what what sort of prophecies do we have that can that can speak towards the timing of the Messiah having to be um, before the destruction of the Second Temple? Um, and one thing I just wanted wanted to admit, I included in my blog um, a series of principles to interpreting messianic prophecies. So this is an overall type case, and um, one has to bear in mind, e- even with some of the prophecies where it's actually uses the word Mashiach, none of the Messianic prophecies that Christians or Jews use, uh, you know, come with little labels, you know, Messianic prophecy here or that sort of thing. There's always an interpret. nothing in the Bible has that. Even uh, Messianic prophecies that you think are clear, that Jews believe in and that sort of thing. There's always a level of interpretation and there are ways that we try to identify these prophecies as being Messianic. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not just a matter of, okay, this, this is a messianic prophecy. There's the little label. Perfect. The Messiah will do this. The Messiah will do that. So there is a, a, a level of interpretational complexity to these prophecies. Even in my first, uh, timing prophecy here, Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 to 27. This is a, another big, uh, big baby for Christians in, in, uh, presenting messianic prophecies. And I'll just read it because I know David likes that. So um, 70 weeks um, have been decreed for you, for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for the iniqui- for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know uh, and discern that from the issuing of a word, uh, some translations say decree, uh, that's not the proper translation. So from the going forth of a word to restore and re- uh, and build is what the Hebrew actually says, Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again uh, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah or a Messiah will be cut off uh, and have nothing or not or not for himself, as some Christian translations put it. And the people of the prince who has come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, and it goes on from there. It's getting too long. So basically what, what this prophecy is saying is there's going to be a period of 70 weeks and weeks are interpreted as seven years. So 70 times 7, which is a period of 490 years. In that time, all of those various things, making an end of sin, atonement for iniquity, uh, will have begun before the the Messiah is cut off, meaning killed, 
uh, and before the destruction of the temple. Um, now, there, this is a very complicated prophecy. There is a lot of various things that uh, scholars debate on, on, even on Christian and Jewish sides. I mean, the, uh, it, are there gaps between these periods of seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then a final period of seven weeks? Um, you know, when, when does this prophecy start? Uh, there are at least five different starting points um, that Jews and Christians differ over. Um, I, I basically want to keep it simple because I, I don't think we can get to conclusive answers on any of this stuff. There are valid interpretations on both sides. But what I think is clear is that these certain things had to be fulfilled either in part or uh, in full before the destruction of the second temple. That's the clear little nugget that I'm trying to establish here. Um, another, another prophecy, just as sort of backup as a support, is Haggai chapter 2, uh, verses 6 to 9. And this, this one's shorter. So this one just says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land. I'll shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house. Remember that word, fill this house with glory, uh, says the Lord of hosts. So when it's talking about this house in context, it's talking about the second temple, the one that's being rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. Um, so, uh, and it says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Well, what is this talking about? What do you mean fill, fill a house with glory? Well, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah, which is Hebrew for the divine presence, filled the tabernacle and filled the first temple when Solomon uh, dedicated the, the, the temple at its, uh, at its uh, completion. Um, so God's presence filled the temple and that gave it its glory. But all Jews, even ancient Jews and modern Jews, recognized that with the second temple, Something was amiss. It didn't have the glory. Uh, Christian, so therefore this would be a, a bus, right? This prophecy would be wrong. Ah, but Christians, actually, God's presence did uh, fill Jesus. God became incarnate and he entered the temple, uh, the temple compound. So that's, Christians are able to say, no, this isn't a false prophecy. God did fill the glory and it's even greater than what we have before. Because God the Son in the flesh entered the temple. Um, so that that's, yeah, sort of in a, in a nutshell, how I established that this second temple, various messianic elements had to come about. Um, and there's even this hint with Haggai chapter 2 that God himself would enter the temple premises or fill it with glory. And... How does that come about? Well, Jesus himself entered the temple. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for the criticisms then. Okay. Um, well, I guess we'll start with uh, Haggai. Okay. We both agree that at least on the surface, this is not talking about um, Temple 3. This is, in fact, talking about Temple 2. Um, and it, it the, the most sensible Jewish reading is that it's talking about Temple 2. And I, the, the reason I harp on the Jewish reading is that this is a Jewish scripture written to Jews. 
in a time so far removed from anything like a Christian, uh, the word would have no meaning uh, to to the people alive at that time and who were going to be alive um, uh, even well beyond that. And so this does seem to be a reference to Temple 2, a... Um, a prophecy that you know this is don't don't worry about the destruction of the old temple this is going to be even better turns out it wasn't but the christian has to keep hope alive um they they have a theological reason for wanting to say well it's more than that because it would make the prophecy wrong it would make god a liar and so they just have to come up with something else to save it and I would say that this is the this is the sign of how biblical inerrantists read the Bible. It's one of the one of the thoughts that seems to never have crossed Dale's mind in all of this is that the prophecy could just be wrong, and that this could be an error. Now, he claims that he believes that there can be errors, <laughs> but yeah. I am I am surprised at the number of times when he could use that argument and it never crosses his mind to do so. He reads it like a biblical literalist who has to save the text at every turn, and this is one of those texts where it, it you know, it it seems like it's it's clearly talking about one thing, but you have to twist it and make it something else to to save it. And so part of prophecy reading, the way Christians read prophecy, and we're usually talking about biblical literalists who harp on prophecy, is that they have to save the text. They have to make it not be wrong. And one of the ways they do that is to insert Jesus into it uh, and just just bend the interpretation just a little bit, and, uh, and then it's saved. And I, I just don't think that that is the most honest and fair reading of ancient literature, uh, and so I, I, I just I, I find that very problematic. But let's go back to uh, Daniel in seventy weeks. Sure. You mind if I say a, a quick thing um, sure. before you move on, or sure. I don't want to interrupt. Okay, uh, yeah, um, I, I would agree. So, so yeah, I, I do think there can be and are uh, errors in the Bible, um, but I would just say remember for for this argument. You, you can say this is a bust. It, it's the circumstance that it's Jesus or a bust uh, only, Jesus only or a bust option. So, yeah, you're, you're perfectly free to say well, this is just rubbish, but then we would still have this odd circumstance that I'm trying to make, make my argument on, and we would still have that weird circumstance to contend with. And, even and, if you, and I yeah. will. So okay. the, I, I, will, so, I will get to the Jesus or, or bust idea. I'm just, you know, I think your argument would have been stronger had you left Haggai out. Um, so I do want to uh, thank you for acknowledging the difficulty uh, in, in these prophetic texts. And it's, this was one of the points that I was going to make. Maybe that's why you went ahead and and made it preemptively. So I, <laughs> but either way, I will thank you. It's fair to, uh, yeah, I think it's, it, it's in my blog as well. You, you got to be fair. If this is about truth, we, we can't just pretend that it's straightforward. So no, but yeah, most gotta, Christians do pretend that it's straightforward. All you got to do is sit down in front of YouTube and watch for about 10 hours. 
Um, and you can see that Christians pretend that this is straightforward. Um, yeah, well, they, they shouldn't. Then. It, Hopefully it, this will educate, educate it, them. It is not. In fact, there there's so little that you can be sure of. Uh, one of the one of the points that you made that I want to re- emphasize is just what is Messianic prophecy? Messianic prophecy is in the eye of the interpreter. So the, one of the reasons I know this is as you study Messianic prophecy from the Christian perspective and as, as a, from a Jewish perspective, and you make this study side by side, and you just pull together all of the things that the Christians uh, list as Messianic prophecy and the things that Jews list as Messianic prophecy, they're two very different lists. They are, they're, the Jews put things in the category of Messianic prophecy that I do not put in a Messianic prophecy. Uh, just as a reading of the literature and understanding what the Messiah is supposed to be, even from a Jewish perspective, it, it seems like a lot of that is a reach. Uh, and so if I were debating a Jewish scholar right now, uh, I would, you know, I don't, I don't think that I would press the point too much, but I would, I would ask them to explain, how do, you, how do you get this into Messianic prophecy? This doesn't seem to be referencing a Messiah. But they, they have a very different reading on Messianic prophecy, and it's not clear what is supposed to be a Messianic prophecy and what isn't. In fact, it is not entirely clear what is meant to be a prophecy and what isn't. So you can you can take the Messianic part out of it. Prophecy isn't as clear as all of that either, and in many cases, you just can't figure it out. So in, in terms of 70 weeks, uh, you know, this is a very important timeline, and Dale uh, mentions that there are five places where it will start. Well, one of those places where it starts is prior to Daniel writing this. So the 70 weeks would have begun, uh, you know, maybe 50 weeks ago. <laughs> so that so that the prophet is saying, you know, this will be fulfilled right around the corner in your lifetime. Uh, that's, that is a uh, reading that Christians don't tend to uh, highlight because it kind of takes Jesus out of the picture. Uh, those who do agree that uh, the timeline begins earlier than Daniel uh, would then say, yeah, but these 70 weeks are broken up. Uh, so there's uh, seven weeks and then 62 weeks and one weeks, and they're not necessarily all in a row. So that's one way to get around that. And um, another thing, the thing that... Uh, Dale is doing right now is he's saying, well, however the 70 weeks are supposed to be broken up, they have to be completed before the destruction of Temple 2. And what I am presenting, uh, I'm presenting several resources in the sources, but I'll present at least one in the text where uh, there's a video that you can watch. You can watch all one hour and 53 minutes of it if you like, and I think it's probably worth your while if you really care about messianic prophecy it's jews it's it's the jews for judaism guy um i I can't recall his name at the moment uh but uh he's a he's a rabbi a very good teacher i i actually believe his interpretation uh of this passage uh, more than i do any christian interpretation of this passage but he puts it so much better than i do and he has a lot more resources and facts to go with it. I'm not even going to try to recapitulate his argument. I would just say that if you care about it, you can watch it. And if you don't care about it much, you just care about it for the sake of this debate, 
start at uh, one hour, 40 minutes, and then watch the last 13 minutes of it. Uh, and you will find that his case is just the opposite from Dale's at the end of the day. It's not that the Messiah has to come before the destruction of the temple, but he has to come after the destruction of the temple. Now, I do not plan to argue which interpretation is right. I simply plan, uh, intend to argue that there are multiple interpretations that put the timing before the destruction and after the destruction. And even if you take this seriously, the best you can do is, you know, pick a champion and agree with them. But, but there is no, if you, if you devote your entire life to the study, there is no insight or epiphany that you are going to get that will uh, ensure you that, you know, one answer is right and another is wrong. So at the end of the day, the best I can do is show you multiple views on this and, and let you realize that anyone who comes up with certainty on this probably should uh, be suspicious of their answers. Do you want to come back on any of that, Dale? Sure. Um, so, so, yeah, as I said, I, I would agree in part, uh, you know, in, in terms of coming with these things with certainty, um, I would say that we could have certainty if you're interpreting that to mean balanced probabilities, that this prophecy is at least saying these certain things in verse 24 are supposed to happen before the destruction of the second temple. Um, and bear in mind, I, I'm I'm dis, not just disagreeing with modern Jews. Actually, Jews agree with me, ancient Jews, like Josephus and Rabbi Kiva, I know David mentions, they, they agree with even Rashi. I mean, this is like St. Anselm uh, for Jews. Rashi is a, another bigwig uh, that all modern Jews have to follow. He, he agrees that this prophecy is messianic and it, it's talking about the messianic era had to come, come about um, with the destruction of the second temple. Obviously, Rashi doesn't believe that the Messiah actually came, so that's sort of a, an issue. But yeah, there, so there is, there are certain elements that are clear in this, whereas others I don't think we can be dogmatic on as well. Obviously, that's the matter of debate. Uh, the second thing that I will back David up on, again, it's that what I said, Messianic prophecies don't come with little labels. Um, saying, you know, the next paragraph is, contains a prediction about the Messiah or something like that. Um, so there is a level of interpretation. And there are, are techniques. For, for example, automatically, anytime there's any prophecy related to the king, kings or the kingship of Israel, that's automatically for Jews and for Christians that, okay, that's automatically you're a candidate, you're a potential messianic prophecy. Um, then there's also contextual indicators, right? Like, what? okay, well, what is the prophecy saying is going to happen? Is it about, you know, the, the end times when the messianic era of universal peace or uh, putting an end to sin and establishing God's kingdom as, as in the context of Daniel? I, I would say read all of Daniel, you know, especially Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7 in relation to Daniel 9. Um, there is a connection there. Um, so it's it's the context that gets us to go, this is a messianic prophecy. It's not just prophesying an anointed one. Because one thing I should clarify is that it uses the word Mashiach, 
right? And in Hebrew, that just means an anointed one. There, there is no such thing as the Messiah in the Bible, the Old Testament Bible. There are multiple messiahs or multiple anointed ones. The kings so, are all messiahs. So can I can I just interject at oh, this I, point of of, a, yeah. of agreement while we're while we're on a note of agreement? This is one of those areas where the King James version of the Bible. Yeah. Um, over overreached and by overreached I mean just made stuff up um, it it took a text that did not in fact say the Messiah and changed it fundamentally to the capital Messiah as a as opposed to something more generic it's because yeah. because the interpreters were trying to make an argument Sure. Yeah, uh, uh, that's absolutely right. In the in the Hebrew, it it doesn't say Ha Mashiach as though the Messiah, capital M. There is no such thing. Uh, that, so that is the King James interpreters uh, reading something into the text. However, I I think what they're reading in is actually correct. So I I, I wouldn't take as much of an issue with them, but just from a strict translational. Thing they they were wrong. That, yeah, if, that's if, you, if you're a word for word, uh, yeah, uh, a reader of the Bible, and you like those word for word translations, what you have to understand is there is no such thing as a word for word translation because even those are tinkered with, so that uh, they they end up with words that weren't there. Um, it's it's fraudulent. I mean, I I don't think that Dale would go as far as to say it's fraudulent, but I I call it fraudulent. They're lying about the words that they found. They are not translating uh, um, honestly. And so even if Dale is correct that, and even if the King James uh, uh, in, interpolators are correct uh, in what it meant, that is not what it said. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's undeniable. And I, just as a heads up, when I when I was studying, I told David in private that I I really looked into Daniel uh, back in the day when I, this was years back. I was a Christian, and this was when I was a King James onlyist. So you can imagine how how problematic this studying this issue was for me because there are a lot of issues, translational issues, uh, with the King James version in particular in this this chapter. So. Uh, but yeah, now now I'm I'm able to understand uh, you know textual criticism, and it, it doesn't it doesn't bother me now if if that word is is correct. It, it's still the correct meaning is preserved in the text. It is, in my opinion, about the Messiah, capital M. Well, at, uh, at the at the best, you're making an argument that word for word translations are stupid, and thought for thought translations are better. Because that's all you have anyway. <laughs> if you think you've got a word-for-word -word translation, you're just deceived. Correct. Yeah, there, there is no... Per, there's, the Bible hasn't been perfectly preserved. I, I think most, even even Joyce would, would agree that that's fine. Like So we, yeah, um, we don't have that. So, so your last point that I wanted to address. So, so this is the point uh, David's talking about the timing. So in it... It is source, um, and I recommend looking at all the sources. I know David's going to say he he wants you not to look at them, fact, but I will, I will go ahead and say it now. Even the sources that I give, except for the one that I highlight in line in my argument, don't don't bother, um, because this is a little bit like trying to understand the Book of Revelation. You can't do it 
and only kooks try. And the, the fact of the matter is, I don't want you wasting the next 16 hours of your life digging through sources for answers that aren't there. They're not in Dale's sources and they're not in mine either. Okay, so obviously I agree to disagree with that. I, I think it is worthy of taking, spending some time, maybe not 16 hours worth, but maybe spend a couple hours, look at his one of his sources and look at some of my sources, maybe do a little reading. I mean, it's not like you have to do it all at once. Spread it out. And if, if you're like, you know what, I agree with David, this Daniel 9 thing, I can't make sense of it, that's fine. But I think, I think it is, these are important topics that are worthy of some consideration. I mean, well, the reason you know, you know that you can't make sense of them is because people who are a lot smarter than you and a lot more educated in this than you can't make sense of them. You are not going to do better <laughs> by reading these sources, so stop it. This is not like this is not like um, uh, chemistry. You know, you can you can spend a few hours and learn more about chemistry, so it's worth doing. Uh, you can you can learn maths by spending a few hours uh, and stretching your brain a bit and, and learning more. So it's it's worth doing. I don't care how many hours you spend on this. You are not going to come up with the epiphany that clears this up. There's no epiphany. Okay. Well, I, I, I think there is with the second temple aspect. That's why I'm, I'm the less ambitious, as your rabbi calls it. I'm the less ambitious type of apologist. And I, I think we can't establish that much. Uh, and by the way, I was going to say, I, I'm, I'm disagreeing with... Christians as well. Gleason Archer, a, a, a wonderful biblical scholar, brilliant. I mean, I think he was wrong on his interpretation. So, yeah, look, look into it and see what you think for yourself. But sure. here, how, do you, how do you determine that he's wrong? This is this is part of the thing that puts it into kook theology for me. It doesn't. I, I understand that you have an argument that makes sense to you, but how do we check that against anything? How do you? Can you ask Daniel Here's, what he meant? You cannot. No, so do, Here's what you do. You do the best you can. That do what you did. You you look at both all you know both or all the sources that you can, and then you read the text in full context, and you you decide for yourself. You've done that, and kudos to you for doing that. I appreciate that you looked at both sides, and your and in your honest opinion. I'm assuming uh, I'm assuming you're not lying to me when you say this, but in your honest opinion, you, you don't buy it. You you. Well, actually, yeah, there's, I don't there's know. There's nothing to buy. I mean, I can, I can, I, I would, I would love to say, uh, you know, that you, you know, I gained some clarity on this, but there isn't really anything uh, to gain there. And the reason, if you just take out the Jewish sources, forget, forget Jews for Judaism. Who cares? Christians for Christians. Let's 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 look at that. Um, and you just look at ten different Christians preaching two-hour sermons on this. They do not agree. Okay. And, and so at, at the end of the day, there's nothing really to latch on to. I mean, yeah, I suppose you can, if you've got a horse in this race, you can bend the text to, you can find a way to bend it to, to your particular way of thinking. But there is no way to... Uh, you know, like chemistry, to go to a source and figure out what it really means. That you just can't do it. You can come up with your a judgment, but how do you sit there and say, "Well, your judgment is better than these fifteen scholars 
who have spent their life studying this, and you've just you know read some sources on the internet. There's there's no way for you to prove them wrong or you right. It this is the nature of the thing that we're talking about. Well, I I don't think that's true in all cases. It it, it depends what your what aspect you're talking about here. So Christians for Christians, all all Christian scholars admit this is about the Messiah, about Jesus, and that Jesus this Messiah would die and be cut off after this period of sixty nine weeks. Uh, and that it's talking about the destruction of the temple uh, and the city of Jerusalem. So there are aspects in here that all can agree on. These all are the Christians concepts. with a particular bit. But uh, even let's, let's you, but, well, but no, I, no, they no don't. No Jews ever? No, no, no. I don't. I, I'm not saying no Jews. What I'm saying is, so I was, I was hoping you would get around to Cyrus. Um, the, well, yeah. So this, but I, I have one point to uh, bring up that I thought from your last. So, just before we get to you, Cyrus, hold, hold on, just uh, a moment. You're robot. You're, so robo you're, you're robotizing a little bit. So let me let, just take a. Take a beat. I'll I'll fill that in with a, a little space. So we are going to get to one of the uh, theories of Messiah in this part. Uh, it, it seems like uh, Dale wants to string that out a little bit, and so I will let him. But um, I I just want to let you know that even though we can agree that this is a quote unquote messianic prophecy, and we don't necessarily agree on what what messianic means. Um, we do not agree on when the Messiah was supposed to come or if it was the Messiah or two Messiahs or a series of Messiahs and uh, who some of those Messiahs might have been. So uh, go ahead. Your, your issue might be cleared up by now. Okay. So, so yeah. Um, so just to quickly address that. So David's right. This is another gray zone although not as gray it's not a series of messiahs we know that much it's either one or it's two uh that's what the text justifies so i actually take the view that it's talking about two anointed ones that's fine i i think that the first messiah that comes after a period of 49 years so that's the first seven weeks remember that's broken up seven weeks then 62 weeks uh and then a period of seven uh, of one week uh, so seven, that's 49 years, 7 times 7, and then 62, which is 483 years or 434 or something like that. Um, not good at math, but <laughs> uh, and then uh, the final seven-year period. So I think the 49 years is the first Messiah, or the prince, as it's called, is talking about uh, Cyrus the Great, who was the Persian ruler. He let, you know, he let the Jews return to the Holy Land and that sort of thing. Um, but then it's the second Messiah, the one that's cut off after the, the following 62 weeks, that's Jesus. So that, that's the view I take. Uh, Christians disagree. So, some scholars say, no, it's all the same, same Messiah or that sort of thing, and it, it's a consecutive 69 weeks and that sort of thing. Um, I'm more consistent with the Jews there. I think the Jews are more correct than traditional you know, King James Version study of the division there. But here, here's the point that I wanted to make lastly. So remember I said there are different starting points for this prophecy. And I, uh, I won't 
David says he doesn't want to go down the road, that's that's fine. But I, I'm just going to say this. We can, t- we can talk three just, hours on it and, and not yeah. get anywhere. So that's why I don't want to go down the road. It's not um, – once again, people who are interested in that, we're going to provide a lot of resources. Don't read them. Um, but yeah, there, I, I'm not I'm not turning this podcast in that. We stipulate that there are at least five starting points. So, so here here's the thing though. So David recommends just watch the last 13 minutes of this Jewish rabbi, um, during which he says, "Look, the chronology doesn't work because Christians want to say, what is this word? Okay, when does this prophecy start? Well." Uh, according to him, all Christians say it's 444 BC. He's a little bit off there. It's 446. This is uh, the commission of Artaxerxes the uh, first, as recorded in Nehemiah chapter two, verses five to eight. Um, in the first place, that's not true. Actually, there are multiple dates. Uh, I myself uh, think it's more akin uh, to a decree of Artaxerxes the first in 457. Uh, to 453 BC uh, in that time frame. This is recorded in Ezra chapter 7, verse 12 to 26. So there, there are different, f- at least five different starting points uh, that people give. So it's not necessarily the fact, you know, this rabbi just takes this one and then it says, well, when we calculate it out, it comes out to 38 or what he says, 39 AD. That's too late for Jesus. I guess it's a false prophecy. Um, and he, he talks about how the temple only stood for 420 years. Therefore, this David will say this proves that part of this prophecy, these 70 weeks, has to be the future, just like what the Jews have always been said, been saying. But David is absolutely wrong here. Every scholar who's not a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, doesn't matter, atheist, agnostic, every scholar admits the Jews are wrong. You cannot listen to them for chronology. They are 200 years off the mark. They have the Babylonian exile happening in the 400s BC. We know it took place 606 to 605 BC was the initiating, and then the temple was destroyed in 586 BC um, or 587 BC in that time frame. That's secular chronology. Christians are with secular scholars. Only Jewish rabbis, because they have oral tradition that's flawed and wrong, follow this, that the temple was only around for 420 years. No, it wasn't. Every secular scholar in the world says it was around for 600 years. Um, So if you're watching that 13-minute clip, just be aware that there's this discrepancy uh, in in the chronologies that Jewish, Orthodox Jewish rabbis use versus secular scholars and Christians. So I don't think that, that, that was the only point. I just wanted to say, like, don't go by that and think, oh, it, it's impossible. Christians can't be right. There, and, if, and if you think Dale has an argument here, then force yourself to watch the whole hour and 53 minutes. And I think that um, the uh, the rabbi makes uh, points beyond, beyond this point. So I don't, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is, this is just Dale saying all Jews are wrong about Judaism. And I, I don't actually give much credence to that but that's me so just just to clarify for just for my own knowledge so you you side with orthodox rabbinic chronology you you agree with that against what i would side with is rabbinic interpretation of their own writings okay uh so you know you you might talk about well 
the date the Jews were in captivity or the date the original temple was uh, built. But the Jews may not look at these dates Literally, they may look at them in a theological view. I mean, they have access to Wikipedia. They have access to the Internet. They have access to schools, pretty good schools. Uh, they have access to history and archaeology. You're not, you're not telling them anything that they don't know here. I think that what you miss is some of the nuance of, of how this Jewish literature was written and read in the first place. So I think that when your argument, and it wouldn't matter to me if we're talking about Judaism or uh, Islam or or whatever, when your argument is that the whole of their scholarship is, um, you know, they just don't know what they're talking about, I I I, I tend to dismiss that because that that tells me that there's something that they're saying that you don't understand. Okay, um, so, so yeah, this, this is one of the occasions where I will be strong. No, Jew, Jewish rabbis don't know what they're talking about on, on this specific issue of the chronology. Um, Jim, I, hope, I know that you're knowledgeable, but you like the history, pure history from peer-reviewed historical scholars. Uh, you know, maybe you can chime in and give your take on this to, you know, because I, I know David won't take it from me, but you're at least backing me up on this, that the Jewish people are off on the chronology. That, that's the only point I wanted to establish. So therefore, if you're going to create an argument that the Christian, uh, that the Christian interpretation is impossible because the dates don't align up, then you can't do that. But that doesn't mean Christian interpretations of everything is correct and that sort of thing. That, that was the only point I was responding to there. Um, yeah, I think, so I, th- I think, um, yeah, I guess I, so yeah, I think at this point, I, I'm happy with covering that, uh, the timing issue, unless David has anything else he wants to bring up. But did you want to get into any overall type considerations of the Messianic prophecies? Yeah, I know you so have... I just, I want to go ahead and quickly make my case um, for why I think your case is wrong. <laughs> so if you're done making your case, um, yeah. then I will make my case. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, don't worry, audience. I will make this painless. <laughs> so, um, right. So, you've you've seen Dale's strongest case this week on the timing. It has to be within this time frame. That this is this is Dale's argument. Every week before this, I think the case has been so weak as to be laughable and easily dismissed. He he hasn't really said anything that narrows it down to Jesus. And so you have to say, well, then this has, this has to be the thing that it rests on and it, and it doesn't rest easy here. But I, I decided to do one better, which is to say, I don't care, you know, make the timing anything you want because we can go to any point in history and find Jewish candidates. And so if you said, no, the, the Jewish Messiah has to be within the, you know, the 1900s. Okay. I would have just said, all right, here, here are a couple of candidates from the 1900s. <laughs> so I don't, I don't honestly invest a lot of energy into the timing argument because 
you know, messianic prophecies, there have been been messiahs all throughout history. And every one of them has had the backing of some John the Baptist style priest who says, yep, I, this is the guy. This is him. Look, he matches this criteria and this criteria and this criteria. It's him. Everyone rally behind this guy. So, uh, you know, just looking at the time around Jesus uh, to, to figure that out. Uh, I pulled up a couple, but I, I just want you to know it, it doesn't matter what you think about the couple that I pulled up. Do your own research. Pull up 50 more. They're there. History, history records their stories, um, I think, in ways that are more believable than they record the Jesus story. History doesn't really record Jesus story. We have theological documents for that. Um, but if you want to see who the Jews really considered messiahs, you can actually look it up, and there were plenty of them. So I mentioned uh, Simon of Perea uh, and also uh, a cat named Judah, and I brought up Simon Barkovka. Uh, so many uh, Messiah students probably are familiar with uh, Simon Barkovka, at least. Uh, so we'll get to him uh, last. But these these other guys were notable because of you know some of the some of the things about them. So uh, the first Simon, uh, who is almost dismissible. Uh, he had the interesting mystique of having been said to have risen from the dead after three days. And he uh, taught a lot of the things that Jesus ended up teaching. And so some uh, have suspected, you know, maybe maybe Jesus borrowed some of his uh, message from this guy. Or maybe the Jesus story was written around the message of this guy. Because he, he preached a... a, a suspiciously similar message before Jesus. Uh, Now, as far as the claim of him rising from the dead after three days, that is a disputed claim. Uh, It is based on a uh, tablet that's broken off and the piece that's broken off, there's some, you know, some, maybe some indentions. This is, this is what happens when you write by chiseling things into stone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's not a very reliable way of transmitting information, um, and you know we we get to a point in that uh, stone where it says in three days, blank, <laughs> and uh, some have interpreted the 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 little bit that's there as rise that he's being commanded to rise in in, in three days. Um, and others interpret it slightly differently. And either way, it could be interpreted as, as saying that, you know, he was ordered to rise from the dead by the archangel, uh, was it Michael uh, here? I don't know if you've uh, mm-hmm. done that research or not. It doesn't matter. It's all crazy. It's, it's all nut jobbery. But the idea that Jesus was the first one for whom it was said he rose after three days is simply not true. You can find other examples of this. You can find other examples of this in uh, Messiah figures, but you can certainly find other examples of this in God figures. Horus is probably my favorite uh, Jesus analog. Um, so the, the Jesus story, not terribly unique there, and uh, even his message uh, not terribly unique. 
uh, I mentioned uh, Judah because why did I mention Judah? Uh, Judah. Was, uh, oh yeah, Judah was the one who taught um, the message. Um, that was very similar to Jesus, not not Simon Priya. So my apologies there. And uh, and then we come to Simon Barkovka. Uh, Barkovka is uh, from a Jewish expression, "son of the star." This is actually from a place where Jews would uh, refer to as a messianic prophecy, and Christians wouldn't. But um, he had uh, as his prophet uh, Rabbi uh, Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is one of the more interesting figures in uh, Jewish history. I think Rabbi Akiva is probably more interesting than Barkovka. Um, and I think this is true of a lot of the Messiahs, because like I said, the Messiahs had heralds, kind of like Jesus had John the Baptist, saying, make way, the Messiah's coming, this is the guy. Well, that story is not unique. All of the Messiahs had heralds. Uh, at least a lot of them did. And in this case... Um, uh, Rabbi Akiva uh, would have been one of them. And Rabbi Akiva was not just any old Jew uh, shouting nonsense. He was the father of modern Judaism. I, I say that without offering much by um, backing up, except I'll, I'll leave a link and you can read it. But he, uh, he was uh, probably one of the most important uh, Jewish rabbis of that time and maybe the most important, uh, most influential Jew, Jewish rabbi to this day. Uh, this is a man who knew scripture. This is a man who understood uh, Messiah's messianic prophecy and the messianic expectation. Um, and he picked a guy. Now, he was wrong. Uh, but the idea is that the people who knew prophecy the most got behind other candidates around the time or shortly after the time of Jesus. Uh, and so the only thing I want to show, I am not going to argue that they were right about their choices of Messiah. I don't think that John the Baptist was right about his choice of Messiah. In fact, if you want to uh, get technical, you could argue that John the Baptist uh, probably met uh, most of the criteria of Messiah. Um, it, is, it is not my place to argue who was right and who was wrong about who the Messiah was. I am simply arguing that people who knew what they were talking about or had the authority to, to declare Messiah or not declared other people Messiahs. And yet those people didn't declare Jesus the Messiah. And so there was something about Jesus' claim that Jewish authorities looked at and said, yeah, no, you don't, you don't make it. And yet there were plenty of other people that they were willing to get behind uh, and uh, and declare Messiah. I think that for this, that's all that I have to show because because um, Dale's claim is that nobody but Jesus met the criteria for Messiah, and it's clearly not the case. Now I can't go through these guys' resume. I can't go through Barkovka's resume and you know see how he did with all of the passages that Dale claims is messianic prophecy. Once again, not my job. The Jews already did that, and they come they, and they came up with many. And that is the only case that I am trying to make here. So Dale's argument is that it's Jesus or bust. That may be true if you only look at it through a Christian lens, but if you look at it from a Jewish lens, it's tons of Messiah uh, candidates, 
including candidates that aren't born yet. So not only do I dispute that Jesus is the best candidate for Messiah, he, he wasn't a candidate for Messiah, according to the Jews, and he is far from the only possibility. I'm done. Okay. Uh, so not sure how to... So, so in the first place, you would admit that based on my list, like my overall list of what I think are established messianic prophecies... None of the candidates you point to would fulfill that list. You're I just know, taking. I don't know that. Okay. Do you know that? I think so. Yeah. I think I can falsify these people. Really? Um, so, so in the, in the first place. Wait, wait, wait. What do you have access to to falsify these people that the Jewish leaders of the day didn't have? That the Jewish leaders didn't. Yeah, have? the people who who follow these people as Messiah. What do you ha- What do you know that they don't? I have my list of prophecies that I think are established that the ancient Jews... Well, they didn't have your list, apparently. They had another list. Why is your list better than theirs? They had, they had some of the things on my list, but they just had different interpretations. That's why, because... Well, but according to you, to you no Jewish candidates had, candidate had everything on your list, and so it could be that there's something wrong with your list. Have you considered that possibility? Yeah, that we spent four weeks going over that. That was... With the momentous birth, for example, that's right. why we and, and if, if only that. all of those Jews who followed these messiahs had your list, they would have they would have slapped their head and said, "Oh, it, this Dale list makes it clear that guy couldn't be the Messiah." Correct. If they had my, do had you hear my how list. it sounds? <laughs> that doesn't sound crazy. It Obviously, does. it sounds, isn't list. It sounds arrogant to the height. If if only they had your list then all those rabbis could have kept from making a mistake. Why does that sound arrogant? If if they had my list, if somebody went back in time and said, hey, here's a list of qualifications for the Messiah, they would see that. That's that's obviously what the debate's <laughs> so, about. So why do, you, why do you think that they made those mistakes? Were they, did they not know their Bible? Did they not understand yeah. their own prophecy? Tell me. I think, yeah, uh, there's a multiplicity of reasons. Well, I, I want to hear it come out of your mouth, this, this almost anti-Semitic idea that the Jews were too stupid to understand their scripture. I want to hear you say that. <laughs> anti-Semitic, okay. I do good. think that's an anti-Semitic idea. But if it's maybe... Wrong. Well, I then just you're... want to hear you say it. The Jews were too stupid to understand their scripture... They wouldn't know a Messiah if it came up and slapped him in the face. Go ahead and say that. I don't think they were too stupid, but then I think were there they? is a variety of cultural influences. No, don't give me a variety of cultural influences. Tell me no, why they were wrong. Why did they miss it? That is one of the reasons because they had that's not a reason. Blinders on. This is the cultural the blinders doesn't mean anything. What are the it cultural means. blinders? Why did they miss it? Okay, number one, because they probably didn't, they had cultural blinders on in terms of what they were expecting. We all know the culture. All of them. They were expecting a kingly, the mainstream establishment that mm-hmm. you're talking about. That, that is who you're talking about, yeah? Yes. I mean, it's like asking me, why didn't the mainstream establishment understand what the Essenes taught and stuff like that, right? It, it, there's any number of reasons that the Jews could be wrong. We know repeatedly in the Bible, the Bible itself, Jews wrote the Bible, like Isaiah, saying the mainstream Jews don't know what the hell they're talking about. King Josiah, they totally forgot the Torah, totally brand new. 
They just find it in the palace and remember. Same with after the Babylonian exile. This is in Ezra and Nehemiah. They, the Jews. Okay, then why do you side with the minority voices? Because you look into the text and you decide for yourself. Have I established that Isaiah 714 is talking about the Messiah having to have minimally a momentous Why do you birth? establish that Isaiah knew what he was talking about? How do, you, how do you establish? Because he's a prophet? Yeah, in the canon of the Bible. Okay, well, it's in the Bible, of course. But how do you establish historically that Isaiah was a prophet who knew what the hell he was talking about? How do you not establish okay. him as a false prophet because his prophecies didn't come true? Okay, so good point. So interacting with a the skeptic then. Here's the literature that Jews and Christians take to be authoritative, and I'm making my argument based on that we can identify it that it's either Jesus or bust. Uh, so you don't have to accept that Isaiah was a prophet. You just have to accept some guy wrote this this stuff, and that points to either Jesus was the Messiah or a bust. Um, so this is where you, you bring up various options within the time frame. So in the first place, so can I... Yeah, so in terms of the list itself as a whole, I get that... You Jews have a different list. They only focus on the Messiah's role as the kingly Messiah, the Messiah ben David, as the Essenes would have called him, and they exclude. They just ignore all of the prophecies that are about the Messiah ben Joseph as the— No, they don't. They they simply think that they're fulfilled in other ways, that, they was, that they, they're not, in fact, talking about the Messiah as they think of the Messiah, the main figure of the Messiah. Okay, they, so that's they do not ignore, they yeah. do not exclude. They would not necessarily consider Isaiah 53 as a messianic prophecy. Correct. So so this is why we spent last week debating that point. Did I establish that it is a messianic prophecy and that it the certain elements that I was using, is it established or not? That's the point of us taking a week to debate that. You were giving your best shot to say, no, it's talking about the nation of Israel or a righteous remnant. And I was saying, no, it's talking about an individual, the Messiah, who represents Israel uh, in context. And he would die for the iniquities and, you know, what he would he would not be violent and that sort of thing. That that was why we have a, had a debate. So people can kind of go, well, I, I don't think you've established a case that the Messiah would do this. Or they would go, yeah, I think Dale's right. This This text does say the Messiah would do these. Things. This is a criteria that needs to be on a list. Uh, that's the point of debating it. So, well, so we we did we did debate that, and I don't think you established your case. I, I think my case was okay. better, but that's fine. You you think it belongs on the list, but the the Jews did. did not believe think it belongs on the list. And so, if you had presented your list to the Jews uh, at the time of Jesus. They would have said, no, this is nonsense. You don't understand our scriptures. And what you're saying is, no, you're full of nonsense. You don't understand your scriptures. Yeah, I, I, I think that your, your argument, well, but I think that's I think that's not credible. And I do think that it somewhat borders on, um, you know, anti-Semitism uh, anti is a loaded so, term that I don't like using. So. But it, 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 does, it, it does kind of have you saying those evil Jews... Uh, with their uh, twisted mindset, didn't understand their own writings and God's word, and they were all um, too absorbed with their culture to to understand truth. 
But me, thank God for me and other Christians who came along, we understood it better. Um, and so yeah. we can make a better uh, uh, list Correct. of what the Jewish Messiah is than they. And here's what I would ask of you. And I, do, I know you're going to disagree and say no, but I, I'm going to ask it anyway, just to see if we can build a bridge. Would you agree to stop talking about Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, which he clearly isn't, and uh, refer to him as the Christian Messiah? Because I think the Christians have a right to make their own list of what a Messiah is, just like the Jews had to make their own list. Now, the Christians are doing this off of Jewish scriptures. I don't think you have the right to subsume Judaism and reinterpret it uh, as your own. But at the very least, would you stop saying Jesus is what the Jews were talking about? Because he clearly wasn't what the Jews were talking about. Now, he's clearly the Christian Messiah. I don't mind thinking of Jesus as the Christian Messiah. But um, c- could you go that far? Um, okay, so to accommodate uh, you because you, you're taking... So in the first place, I wouldn't know. But because of the way you're taking it, I would compromise and say, fine, I think Jesus is the biblical Messiah. Let's say that. Based on the Old Testament scriptures, he is the biblical Messiah. Um, and that I would be comfortable with that. With that, But it's not that I'm just saying the Jews are stupid. We are stupid too. We're, we're all inuated with these cultural expectations. And Peter, for goodness sakes, he had the same expectations that these Jews did. He, you know, Jesus says, oh, I, I'm going to, now it's time for me to die. And Peter said, no, no, you're the Messiah. You can't uh, die. And Jesus has to rebuff even him. So nobody denies that this was in within the cultural milieu. Nobody denies that Jews, by and large, got it wrong constantly. But, but, they, but they how do you know that no was wrong? Why, why, why do you insist that that expectation was wrong? Because we look at the text and try our best. We look at the various interpretations and, and what scholarship says, and then we had a discussion. So you, we looked at Isaiah seven fourteen. I believe this is prophesying about a momentous birth that would serve as a sign to the house of David. So look, I'm Isaiah. glad you brought that up again. Can you tell me what the momentous sign was? What What was the momentous birth? No, you can't. So I'm just going to cut you off right there because there are only two possibilities for a momentous birth in the Christian Jesus story. Uh, one is a, a star representing... Um, you know, where, where sure. Jesus would be, and another would be the virgin birth, uh, which is what most Christians land on. Angels appearing to shepherds in the Angels fields. appearing to shepherds, that's, yeah. that's fine. I, I, th- <laughs> cool. Um, but here's the, here's the problem with the, all of the Jesus had a moment of birth stories. They're all fiction. So um, I, I, would, I would argue that, if anything, there is evidence that Christians were so desperate to line up their story with prophecy that they made stuff up awkwardly. Now, why do I say that? Well, we can read Mark as it stands now. Mark starts with uh, chapter 3 of Matthew and Luke, but of course Mark came first. Mark does not know anything about a momentous birth of Jesus. He knows nothing about it. Uh, it, it It defies reason to say he knew about it, but he just didn't think it was important. It's probably the most important thing he could know, but um, he, he didn't. He didn't include anything like that. Not to mention, what Jesus was in Mark was just a guy. 
uh, who got baptized, and then you know something special happened to her after that. Mark doesn't have any momentous birth stories. Now then, we go to Matthew, uh, the second book, and it may give some clue of why it comes in the order in the uh, first, as opposed to the chronological order of second. Um, the original Matthew, there's some evidence uh, that the Ebionites used a version of Matthew that did not include the first two chapters. All of the momentous birth stories are in the first two chapters of Matthew. But the earliest versions of Matthew, it, it appears, and I did not include any links to this, and I'm not going to go back and do it. Look up uh, Ebionites in the book of Matthew. I already know about them, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, this is, this is well-trod history that uh, those first two books of Matthew are also disputed, and it looks like they were tacked on after the fact. Uh, in other words, Matthew started in the same place that Mark started, which was the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. Um, Luke. So where do we? So you say, well, okay, but Luke has it. I think by the time we get to Luke, uh, we, we've already got a, a lot of evidence that people were uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus not having a momentous birth story, and we're adding them in and writing them in. There is there is actually some uh, question that about the first two chapters of Luke is not as strong as the questions about the first two chapters of Matthew, but I think it doesn't matter at this point. We have reason to believe that the first two chapters in Luke were made up because we have uh, in these first two chapters all of this stuff about virgin birth and angels talking to, to Mary and you know the, the shepherds and, and so forth, but later on in Luke, we have a, a thing that seems to be older and that remained in the text, which is where uh, Jesus uh, was in a crowd and his family was outside and wanted to see him and take him away because they thought he was mad. And uh, Jesus wouldn't go with him and he, would, he wouldn't let them in. Uh, and the reason this stands out as such a sore thumb is that if, in fact, the first two chapters of Luke were legitimate and they had actually happened. There's no way that Mary would be sitting out saying, oh, he must be mad. In, in, as if she had forgotten that he was the child of a miraculous birth who was actually God incarnate. Um, so no, it, it, there's no good reason to believe that there is any legitimate uh, momentous birth story about Jesus that wasn't tacked on just like the ending of Mark was tacked on later to fix a theological problem. Okay, uh, so I'm debating whether I have to address, even address this or not, because I, the Ebionites, Jewish heretics, they, they were not Christians. Um, and we know, you know, they're writing somewhere in the 90s to early 2nd century AD. Um, but, yeah, Remember, it's, it, I'm establishing it's Jesus or but. So I'm debating if I even need to address that. I can just say, okay, f forget all of that for a second. So if what you're saying is true, they just they're just making up cl unfalsified claims. Great. Then we can point to you can point to others who would have done the same. Now you bring up Simon of Perea. Um, I've, I've been trying to get to your examples. So. He was the one that most intrigued me because uh, you said he rose from the dead after three days. And I, I was glad that you gave a bit of explanation there because I, I did look into, we, we in Josephus, Josephus mentions this. There's a couple of 
paragraphs with him. This is in his Jewish War, uh, you know, Book 2, uh, verse 57 to 59, and also in Jewish Antiquities, 17, um, page 273 to 277. Um, but what do we know about this guy? He was a slave of King Herod. Um, he, you, you know about this? Yes. Um, perfect. Uh, what else? He... Uh, burnt down the royal palace at Jericho and plundered what was left in it. He set fire to many other of the king's houses, uh, utterly destroyed them. Um, you know, he was basically, yeah, he was basically using violence and force. Uh, yeah, Jesus for would know about that with the cleansing of the temple, but go ahead. Right, so that's not violence then, because this is actual violence, I would say. So it violates. Well, I think that beating people with whips is violence, but maybe you have a different uh, interpretation of what violent is. Yeah, uh, I do. So yeah, but go okay. ahead. I mean, I you know my my people have a history of being beaten with whips, and we think of that as violent. I haven't right, evolved so beyond that. So violence in an ancient Near Eastern context is talking about bringing uh, the sword or death. And, oh, yeah. Well, as long as it wasn't a sword, it was, it's cool. Go ahead. These are the standards of the Hebrew scriptures, which is... I, I, I understand you are, you are not scoring any points there, but go ahead. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's the standard that the, the guy who wrote the prophecy would have understood. They wouldn't understand... A modern thing. Oh, whipping, that's mean, that hurts. You know, they, they don't think of violence in that way. Sure, okay. Um, so, that, so that's fine. So I would disqualify him there. Nothing about this guy's birth. He, there's no mention of a claim that he had a momentous birth at all. Um, so according to the claims himself, that falsifies him there. Um, also falsifies Jesus. But go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it's look. Okay, so you think what you said actually falsifies on a balance of probabilities. On the balance of probabilities, the birth stories are uh, additions. On the balance of pros uh, probabilities, in in other words, even the claims aren't legitimate original claims. Now, later, uh, sure, people started claiming it, but they were claiming it because they needed uh, Jesus to be God. And that was not a part of the original story. It wasn't the original story in Mark. And you can prove this because the Ebionites denied I can, it. I can, I can make a good uh, start of that case because it's not in the book of Mark. Okay, uh, cool. So I will agree with David here. If you are convinced by the argument that he gave there, which I'm not, I don't find it persuasive uh, on a balance of probabilities, but that would be an attempt to falsify um if you're if you're saying there's no there's no unfalsified claims that Jesus had a momentous birth, you could argue that would falsify Jesus. But yeah, look look into it. I don't find the evidence persuasive. I don't care what Ebionite heretics said. That has no bearing on proto Orthodox Christianity. But you do uh, have to I care about what Mark says. So forget about the Ebionites and come up with a reason why Mark didn't include it. Let's sure. hear you say something sensible. That's, sure. That people would agree with that, you know, here's why Mark didn't include this this momentous birth. Go. Yeah. So biblical scholar Richard Bauckham addresses this, right? There are bookmarked ends of what the gospel, the good news, uh, was. And that started from Jesus' baptism up to his death and or burial. Um, this is why the resurrection isn't mentioned, for example, as well. 
as weird as that might sound to us modern Christians or whatever, although it is implied, it's not just left. Okay, but Christians would disagree uh, with that. This this is not an atheist Christian thing. Christians uh, would say no. Part of the uh, important part of the gospel was that Jesus was God from the beginning, and that God was born uh, to a woman by a special um, dispensation. Jesus was not just a man who became God. That's a different gospel. So you, you can't wave that off as unimportant to the gospel. It is vitally important to the gospel, and that is why it was added later. Put it this way. It wasn't the essential bookends of the gospel. And, and I'm saying that it was essential. It so was, the gospel Yeah, well, as it was first taught, no. It wasn't a part of the, it wasn't, it, it's not that it wasn't essential, it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't a part of the story. How it only became this? a part of the story later. How do you know? That's because it's Because it's essential now. Because, because it was so essential that they had to go back and make it up and put it in. It's not essential. I don't think the virgin birth is essential. Well, but the idea that God was God before he came to earth is essential. Now, you may disagree yeah. with that, and I think that there are different lines of Christianity. Um, certainly, some, some would say that, uh, no, they, they would take an adoptionist view, that uh, he was just a man and uh, became God later. But that's not the mainstream view. Yeah. And, and I think that was a very important distinction in the well, first century, by the way. So that didn't just become important today. Yeah, so... I, I do think that aspect is essential now, uh, or with the closing of the canon. Uh, I'm a little bit more iffy with adoptionists living before the the written canon was totally finished. So I, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm open that these adoptionists could have been wrong, um, but still saved. Um, okay, but, I am but Mark was an adoptionist. And he's the writer out of one-fourth of the Gospels. In fact, I'd say he's the writer of probably four-fifths of the Gospels because the rest for were in large part based on his work. Okay, so I don't believe that. I don't think you can prove that. I know that's Bart Ehrman's argument, right? Bart okay. Ehrman argues that. It's, well. it's okay that you don't believe it and you like, don't think I can prove it. I can live with you not believing it. I'm just making my case. That's a part of my case. Yeah. The listener can... You know, believe Decide believe or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess yeah. That that's why it comes down to this is why it's important for you guys to get into the text and decide for yourself. Don't just listen to me or David. Don't just listen to some Jewish rabbi or whatever. By all means, listen to what we say or listen to our sources. But you you have to get into the text and decide for yourself what what does this mean? You you are responsible for you. You try your best to come to the truth. So this is uh, sort of where I'm, this is why I have a relativization based. It doesn't matter whether you're the stupidest person in the world if, or, you, or you're the poorest person in the world or something, you lack resources. You're only in, uh, obligated to do your best to whatever degree you're capable of to figure out the truth. And then it's on God. If, if you are not saved solely because you couldn't afford a computer to do internet research, that's on God. Um, that's the way I look at it. So it's it, the standards are relative based on the individual involved. Yeah, so. if only those Jews that had computers. Anyway, um, <laughs> so 
<laughs> Great. So um, at any rate, uh, next week, um, next week we're going to talk about the Bible. I've not worked out with Dale whether we're going to do a series or not. I don't, don't actually like the, the series per se because part of the part of the uh, I think what makes this podcast unique. Uh, and we have so few things that make it unique, and I want to keep those things that, that do, is that we have a uh, Christian and an atheist who gets to shape the conversation every other week. And I think a, uh, this is not intended to be, let me, let me finish this statement, this is not intended to be a criticism on Dale, I agree to do this, but it has been a break from that Um and I don't want to break from that. I want to go back to uh, stating what I believe or don't believe and why and giving Dale a chance to rebut that and in immediately giving him a week to do the same. And I think these, this type of series takes us away from that. Uh, and I think that's an important thing that, that makes this podcast good. So I, I want to go back to that. But for the next series of weeks that I have the topic... Yeah, that, I can. That's... This is the thing that I can let you know that I'm talking about. I will be talking about why I do not believe the Bible is uh, a valid guide for knowledge or truth or uh, ethics, and why it should not be taken seriously. Uh, because at the end of the day, okay. all of Dale's arguments uh, from uh, from from the last four weeks really hinge on the Bible being uh, true and and worthwhile. So regardless of whether I think, uh, whether you think he, he made his case based on the literature of, of Hebrew prophecy, you still have to make a judgment of whether Hebrew prophecy matters. So it, it is not enough simply to say, well, here's some Hebrew prophecy and I, and I got the best... Uh, interpretation of that. Now, I happen to think that I have the best interpretation of that, but it doesn't matter. What matters is, should we be trying to gain uh, truths and insights from Hebrew prophecy in the first place? And I will be making the case that whether it's Hebrew prophecy or uh, eschatology or the Gospels or the letters or, um, uh, you know, the, the books of history, I'm, my case is going to be why we shouldn't be looking to the Bible. Uh, for truth and insights and ethics. And uh, so that's, I don't know how many weeks I'll be on that, but for a few weeks, for the weeks that is my turn, and I will turn it over to Dale and he can close it out. I don't even want the last word. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that's all I was going to say. Like uh, I I never asked you to do it consecutively. Like I I was always planning when I, whenever I do a series, I was going to do it. Okay. On my week, if I want to take four of my weeks to do messianic prophecies or talk about, uh, the coherence of theism or something like that, that, that's fine. But then you get to mix it up the, the other week. So, yeah, I think it's good to alternate. So that way each of us has, has the power to choose whether we want to do a series on our weeks or not. Um, yeah, I didn't, I don't think that doing it consecutively was fair to you, but then again, you, you were the one that offered it. So I'm like, okay, whatever you want to do. Um, yeah, so hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoyed the series on messianic prophecies. Um, hopefully, you you think I've 
establish something that's worthy of consideration. Do, have I dotted, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's on, on this uh, circumstantial argument um, of Jesus or bust? Um, no, I, I haven't been able to do that. I haven't addressed all the criteria. For example, in my Jeepley authenticating event, I haven't surveyed all of the um, different ways that could refute this argument. But I think I have established a foundation that there's there's something here. And maybe one of the listeners uh, or, or myself in time might be able to develop this further and transform it into a solid argument that, that does cover all the bases. Um, so yeah, I think I've succeeded in providing a start that maybe there's something here. So yeah, uh, you guys decide for yourselves. Okay, and with that, uh, have a uh, great holiday. On the holidays, we will have a show. We have a, a special roundtable, a Christmas special, uh, that we have pre-recorded. And so you will have something to do when all of the eggnog has been served. Uh, you will still have uh, skeptics and seniors to listen to. So um, in- enjoy. Bye-bye. All right.